red light. You know the owner of the liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cussed out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of the show, Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 282 on the network. Before we bring Jim in, just want to thank our 50,000 faithful subscribers on 74 countries. Uh, tune in every week, grassroots MLB front offices given us the support, the needed support that we needed to get to iHeartRadio now. We're now the newest podcast network on iHeartRadio, so thank you guys for that. Make sure you're following this show. It's going to be a great one. You give Jim five stars, put some nice comments below, and make sure you continue to communicate with us both on social media and privately because we'll these shows are for you. And as you'll learn in today's show, we've got a lot of questions from the audience today that Jim's going to answer for you. So with that, I'll bring in uh, Jim. Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm impressed by the number of questions you sent me in advance and the interest that's out there. So there's lots to cover today. Yeah, we do. And uh, before we get to that, I didn't put this in the questions, but we had a, a friend of yours on coaching Kernan, one of our other shows, actually a flagship show on the network with Kevin Kernan and myself, um, Frank Kopenbarger. And he said to say hello. He was our guest yesterday on Coaching Kernan and um, had some fond memories of his time with you in Major League Baseball. Yeah, Frank and I have kept in touch, uh, you know, through some of the Cardinal reunions and the Phillies because he was with both. Uh, and it's kind of nice to keep that uh, that connection. Uh, you know, it's not always easy to do once your career ends with players that go their separate ways and uh you know, and, and are doing other things in life that aren't at all related to baseball. So uh, uh, I'm happy that Frank keeps in touch and uh, he's become a really good friend. Yeah, I worry about that in today's game where there's so many distractions and everybody seems to be more of an independent contractor in the game where those relationships are, are lost on the younger generation. And I get, I'm the recipient of uh, getting a chance to see all of our co-hosts the great relationships they built over time. And I think our network kind of embodies that. That's how we kind of built our shows. So now I will ask you this. Frank is the second guest in two weeks on Coaching Kernan that was singing praises about your dancing abilities. <laughs> yeah. They want to put me on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Those days are gone. I'm, I'm, and, you know, that was a, that was an era, like I mentioned, when I, when I got to New York uh, and the other day I got uh, – I got a text about uh, staying alive with the BGs. Might have been yours. There was one other one, but that's when Saturday Night Fever came out, and John Travolta and the disco craze uh, was in. And uh, so, a lot of us down in spring training in Clearwater with the Phillies in the late '70s, we were taking uh, disco lessons, learning how to do the hustle and the LA uh, slide. And uh, I always told my pitching buddies I said you guys go ahead and run your sprints I get my exercise in different ways yep that's what that's what uh, Frank attested to he said you guys he's telling me you'd ride the bike in the uh the clubhouse and yeah remember the, the the town of the city he said I'm gonna take a ride to such and yeah so I get on the stationary bike I said I'm heading out to Creve Corps that's right <laughs> said I can never figure out what was out there but uh well it's just a suburb of uh 
a bit of St. Louis where a lot of the players lived. In fact, that's, uh, I think, one of the seasons I was there, I did have uh, rent an apartment out in Creef Court. Yeah. But, uh, he said you, you would say that same thing. You guys go run your sprints and your poles. I'm going to get my exercise tonight. And uh, he said you'd be dancing dancing hard. And then he, he agreed with you. It was good good exercise for you. And I'm sure precision footwork helped with your pitching and your abilities to field as well. So we could start a trend. I did think about the dances with the stars. So I thought about we could put a plea in through the networks, maybe somebody from their networks listening and uh, get a representative from Real Voices of the Game on there. Certainly not going to be me. I wouldn't do us justice on there. So if we uh, if, if we can push you on there, maybe I can coax you into making one last national hurrah out there. I'd have to go through some serious training sessions. <laughs> I get you. I have faith in you. I have faith in you. But uh, so we, our first question today from our audience, uh, you know, we had a, a young man and we chronicled it on this show about the, the mental and physical training that the pitchers go through is not what it used to be where they're mentally and physically able to go through, you know, four and a third, maybe five at the max. And George Kirby with Seattle was asked to go out there. I think he had thrown 90 pitches. He was asked to go out for the seventh through a little over 100, kind of blew the game. Um, rather than just learning from it, went to the media and kind of bashed his manager on it. Just compounded, uh, I mean, the multitude of mistakes that, that went on. But uh, just wanted to, audience wanted to get your thoughts on that whole situation as it pertains to pitching in general, but how he handled that and how it should have been well, obviously it was disappointing, but I, you know, it's it's hard to point a finger at George. Uh, that would never happen in in my era. First thing they do is surprise send you to the minor leagues. But it's the way young athletes have been trained. There are certain barriers that they have their sights on, you know. And today the barriers, boy, if I get six good innings in, I've done my job. And we were never trained to feel that way. Obviously, we didn't pitch a complete game in every start. That was the goal. But uh, never, uh, I'll, I'll give you one learning experience I had from that regard. Uh, pitching on a hot day, and I was in the seventh inning, and our manager came out, uh, Sam Mealy, and, and, you know, the question they always ask is, how do you feel? And I said, I, f- I feel okay. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty hot out here, but I feel okay. Well, are you, are you tired? Are you getting tired? Well, you know, you pitch six, seven innings in the heat. And, well, yeah, I'm a little tired. Bingo, he calls the bullpen. And we lose the game. And so my pitching coach, Johnny Sane, he said the next day we had a little conference, and he said, never give a manager a chance to make his decision based on how you feel. So I learned from that day on, if a manager ever came out to me and said, how did you feel? I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can get this guy because it helps them make their decision. If you say, yeah, I really don't want to be out here and, and actually you lose kind of respect from your teammates too. But I made a very innocent statement, but I learned from that mistake and I, I never did it again, but I, I can't blame George. I I've co- what I coached for Pete. I had a, a pitcher pitch. He didn't start very often, but he pitched five nice innings, came down, sat down. He said, wow, I'm glad I did my job today. And, you know, I had to look up at the scoreboard and I said, well, you know, we're playing nine innings today. Game's not over after five. But, uh, you know, I think they're conditioned. Well, if I play a hundred games, that's a good season. And it's not their fault. We've trained, uh, we've trained our athletes uh, so much differently. I mean, We've trained them to try to be more powerful, speedier, but not in terms of the art and the endurance that it takes 
uh, particularly in baseball, over 162 games, both mentally and physically. And uh, that's too bad. We As Frank Howard, the great slugger years ago, was coaching in the minor leagues, he said, Jimmy, we're training, we're producing a lot of good practice players. They love to practice, but we got to teach them how to play the game and, and get their desire to play the whole game. And unfortunately, the way the game is run today, that's why uh, so many of us former players are disappointed in it, not not because we don't respect the players, because I think they're more talented than ever. But uh, unfortunately, somehow along the line, uh, the propeller heads have taken over. And, and there's a lot of good information that players can learn from, uh, you know, from the different devices that are out there in terms of hitting and pitching. But as far as playing the game, uh, somewhere along the line, we have to have some coaches and and managers that say, hey, you're the I don't care if you're a little tired. You're the best I've got, even at 80 percent. Let's go out there and play. And that attitude just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I, I was uh, again, I, I agree. It's how these guys have been trained from young kids. I was disappointed that he called out in a way, whether it was directly or indirectly, his, his manager or pitching coach in the media. And that's another syndrome that that, that maybe we you can address, too, is today's generation and who knows, I don't want to make excuses for them, but everything they do is out on social media. So fragile when they make mistakes or they fail that their first instinct is to, to deflect. Um, how should that have been handled uh, post-game? Um, how would it have been handled? What would your advice be to George if he could do it again? Well, from George's standpoint, I think, and it would be for many of us, is to go into Scott Service's office and, and say, I'd like to talk to you and say, you know, I was really disappointed that you sent me out there again because I'm normally not conditioned to pitch seven innings. I mean, I could never think of anybody in my era or myself saying that. And that's not to say that we were supermen, but we just weren't trained that way. But yeah, anytime you have, a, and I've had a, a couple with managers that as a, as a young pitcher, I'm sure I made some statements I shouldn't have, but I learned eventually if I had a, a beef uh, I did with Billy Martin one time. Billy was a great game manager, but he was really big on second-guessing pitchers and catchers. And uh, I had pitched uh, – I had started a game on a Thursday, and he asked me on a Sunday, game two of a doubleheader, could I go an inning? And I ended up going five. I gave up a home run in the 16th inning to Jim Pagliaroni. We lost a game out in Seattle. We got back to Minnesota, and Artie Fowler, the pitching coach, uh, the next day said to me, you know, Billy wondered why you didn't throw Pagliaroni a curveball. So the smoke was coming out of my ears, and I went and knocked on Billy's door, and I said, look, if you want to call my pitches before I throw them, feel free to do that. I'd rather you didn't because the only two guys that know the right pitch are the pitcher and the catcher. But, you know, that was one of Billy's habits, and he just second-guessed. He hated to get beat with a fastball. But I, I didn't go to the media with it. I went right to Billy with it. And he was kind of like George Steinbrenner. If you if you show that you're a person of your convictions and stand up to him, you'll have no problem with him. And I didn't. I never had a problem with Billy after that. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, people listen to your message on how to handle it. And and I agree. I think these these kids are not trained to do this mentally, physically, and then also not trained to deal with the failure that may come with it because that's part of baseball. I mean, we're all we're all asked to, right? The biggest thing that we ask from a team is to give up. You have to give up something of yourself for the betterment of the team. I think sometimes the problem is guys don't want to give up 
the thing that maybe they're good at. They want to give up, you know, they, they want to give up something that they don't want to do. And uh, George was asked to go out there and throw an inning. And I'm sure uh, Skip was thinking that he was the best guy for the job. And hopefully the next time he doesn't have to be asked to go out there. He gets out there and he has to be dragged off. I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but the reverse of that happened. You know, when my friend Bert Blylevin was a pitching coach for the Dutch Nationals, and Kenley Jansen, now with the Red Sox, who was a, a catcher originally with the Dutch team and, and became a pitcher with the Dodgers. So they're playing a, an elimination game, and the Dodgers' uh, directive was Kenley can only pitch one inning. So he went into a tie game and retired the side on seven pitches. And he came in and said to Bert, I want to go out there again. And Bert said, I can't send you out there unless you make a phone call. So he had to quickly go to his cell phone and call. And the Dodgers said, no. I mean, that's how stupid we've become with with training and operating pitch through seven pitches. Yeah. Dutch ended up losing the game. But Kenley wanted to go out there. He threw seven pitches. So who comes up with these uh, restrictions? It can't be anybody that's pitched any number of innings in the big leagues because they would know better. Yeah. It certainly isn't preventing any injuries because uh, we're seeing more injuries than ever before. Ironic, right? We're we're so fragile with uh, load management, they call it, and we're making arbitrary decisions about a pitcher when I'm assuming if he had the column on the cell that the person who made the decision for him wasn't present. and. The best pitching coach is you, right? You, you're the only one in the world as a pitcher who knows what your arm feels like. Yeah, I, if I were coaching today, uh, I'd, it'd probably get torn down. But I'd have a sign in the clubhouse or in the bullpen that says, it'll rust out before it'll wear out for the yeah. pitching arm. No, I like that. that shoot, that's uh, that's if, if you put it in the weight room, they would see it and tear it down. But yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Put it on the iPads. They'll see it right away. But with a with a guy uh, moving on to the next next topic, we had a an anniversary happen the other day. It falls unfortunately on another tragic anniversary with our with our country. But uh, Pete Rose, uh, you know, breaking Ty Cobb's hit record, a nice little flare out to left center off Eric Shaw for four thousand one hundred ninety two. I think was the number that that broke it. But um, wasn't celebrated throughout baseball. And I don't know if it's because of his standing in baseball. I don't know if it's because baseball's lost history. I noticed the same thing the file the week before with Cal Ripken's record. Wasn't mentioned at all. Uh, wasn't put out there in celebration. And But want to talk to, our, I guess, the question our audience has. Just caller. challenging was it? Known caller. Rose calling us right now. we got to get him on. <laughs> Who's that? I said that could be Pete Rose calling us right now. Get him on. I, yeah, I, I was there that I was his I was his coach. You know, I was his pitching coach there. Okay, so we um I mean just we talk about load management. Uh, you know, people talk about batting average not being important, singles not being important. I mean, twenty years, two hundred hits, switch batter, three oh three lifetime, never got hurt. I mean, t- talk talk to. I mean, you experienced Pete Rose firsthand. What made him? So special, and just how impressive is what he did? Well, I, I think first of all, you know, he was uh, he had a high baseball IQ and, and a high amount of desire coming out of uh, a suburb of Cincinnati. I think his dad was a semi-pro football player, maybe a boxer. You know, tough. T- Pete was a tough street kid. Just to, as an aside, a minute, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting, uh, an interesting little story since we're talking about Pete. 
and uh, they actually did play this at the Hall of Fame. So I was re- I was in Cooperstown for the last few days for a charity golf tournament that uh, goes on every year for Pathfinder Village, which is a village with uh, residents that have Down syndrome and some other mental or physical disabilities. So my buddies were there, and a couple of them have never been through the Hall of Fame. So we went through there, and lo and behold, one of the videos is showing is Pete getting that hit that uh, broke Cobb's record. Uh, you know, even though Pete is not in the Hall of Fame, there are 32 different artifacts of Pete in the Hall of Fame that show what a great player he was. And, of course, I remember that night vividly because what I did is I had a little, I think it was a, a piece of paper in the dugout, and I wrote down, you know, it was on 811, uh, 9-11, it was at 8-12. Uh, Lee Wire was the umpire. Bruce Bochy, who's now managing the Rangers, was the catcher. Uh, as you mentioned, the hit was off Eric Shaw. Carmelo Martinez fielded it in left field. And the first guy to shake Pete's hand was Steve Garvey at first base. And then, of course, we all ran out to first base. That's probably the first and only time I've seen a tear come out of Pete's eye, you know, it really hit him that he had done something so remarkable. As you said, to get 200 hits a year for 20 years is, you know, something that'll never be done again. But I think the fact that it was not celebrated uh, a great deal in baseball is, you know, an indication that Pete has kind of been his own worst enemy trying to get back in the, in the good graces. But, uh, to play 500 games at five different positions, I think he's the only player to do that. And, uh, you know, he wanted to be out there every day. He was just, uh, he was in that era what players were trained to do. And uh, nowadays, if we see a player play like Pete with that kind of energy, you know, you wouldn't see Pete, for example, get a hit and immediately look in the dugout. Or, uh, you know, now they all have their little private dances. No, his deal was he would round first base. And if that outfielder bobbled it for an instant, he's going to second. Yeah. And when okay. he's on second, he's looking around the outfield. Who's playing where? Can I score on a bloop? Can I score on this? And I blame management for not instilling that in players. I cannot imagine being a manager and allowing my players to celebrate and put on a show during the game. You know, actual, I saw it happen to the Dutch team in the World Baseball Classic uh, back in 2017. Uh, Jerickson Profar got a hit. Uh, one other player did that. They got a hit. They rounded first base. They looked in the dugout. They did their little dance. And all of a sudden, Yadier Molina throws the ball to first base and picks him off. You know, And they got a three-run homer that inning. They should have been ahead by five. So that's an example of how this uh, all this celebration uh, during the play of the game can come back and bite you. Yeah, you would think 4,192. That would warrant some celebration. But I think all he did was... He rounded first base in case there was a bobble so he could take two. He sprinted back to first, looking over his right shoulder to see if there was a bad throw, put his hand on his helmet, and then all of a sudden I think Garvey grabbed him and he realized he broke the record. That's right. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that's what he was trained to do, and his body took over and just said, you know, round first just like it's any other single. But uh, that was really one of, the, one of the high points of my uh, career without being involved in it as a player to follow – what Pete did for that last three weeks with the media, you know, clinging on every at bat uh, to see if, if and when he would break Cobb's record. So it was a, that was a special time to be there. Yeah. I remember the story, if, I, if I'm wrong, correct me, but 
Tony Perez was supposed to bat that night because they, they would, Pete would bat lefty, Tony would hit righty because I think he was still on the, on the team then. And, um, and there was some, I guess, a pitching change late. And so Pete put himself in the lineup uh, as the lefty. But uh, yeah, just the durability to do that mm-hmm. for 20 years, never get hurt. And he played hard. It wasn't like he was Well, just to back up a minute, that story you're talking about, that was kind of a tense moment at Wrigley Field. Uh, Pete got the hit on a uh, Tuesday. We we finished a road trip in Chicago on a Sunday on a very cold, damp, uh, rainy afternoon. And it looked like the Reds were going to lose. And then we came back, and Pete looked at me in the dugout because Tony was playing that day. Steve Trout, the lefty, had pitched for – started for the Cubs. And he said, if the next guy gets on, uh, I got to go up and hit. I can't sacrifice a, a win for the team just because there's nobody there to see if I get the hit that breaks Cobb's record. And he hit off Lee Smith through a walk. And uh, so that was that was what we were all turning around saying, man, what if what if Pete gets a hit here and all the media has already headed for Cincinnati? And then on Monday, he went 0 for 4 against Andy Hawkins and Tommy Helms, who was his close friend. The next day in the clubhouse said, Pete, that's the first time I've ever seen you play a game where you really didn't look like you were enjoying yourself. You know, he was so tense. And I think that kind of that kind of hit home with Pete and he got that uh, hit in the first at bat. Yeah, it was uh, I love the way he handled himself in the game. I know he had some he had his issues off the field and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I wish our young audience out there, if you if you have a moment, just pull up since you're on the iPads, look on YouTube and pull up some Cal Ripley Jr., pull up some Pete Rose, and when that load management wasn't part of the vocabulary back then. Those guys played hard every day because that's how they were brought up to do it. That was so much fun for the guys. I said, you have to see the 17-minute celebration video of baseball that you see when you go to the Hall of Fame, and uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye just hearing the comments from from Ozzie when he hit his famous home run, first one left-handed and like 5,000 at-bats or something, and Cal Ripken is is in there, and Gibson and Marichal and a lot of the superstars of the game talking about what baseball meant to them. And then, of course, you go into uh, into the main part of the museum and see Pete get that uh, hit. So it really inspires you uh, to appreciate what baseball has meant to uh, to a lot of people and, you know, kind of to our country over over the years, it's lost that luster now. Uh, I mean, football obviously is the king, and and baseball has nobody to blame but themselves for that because uh, they've changed the game where it's not the art and skill that it used to be. It's more uh, the science of the game. And uh, so I, I think uh, yesterday the Yankees and Red Sox played the first game of a doubleheader, and they announced 30,000, but the uh, I think the Boston Press said there probably was no more than 10,000 in the ballpark. Yeah, it's interesting. They have a way of skewing those numbers as well to, to meet their needs. I, uh, I've i got a new phrase, and, and I, I threw it out there to a listener who sent me a question. And I always ask, and I use this with, with families when they come and ask me questions about their, their children, whether it's playing time or recruiting or whatever. And my first question is always, do you want information or affirmation? Do you want me to tell you what I feel, or do you want me just to make you feel good so you leave the room and you're happy with, with what's going on? And I think analytics has become the same way. At the beginning, as we said, it's a lot of information, but I think it's become more affirmation where they've got the number they want and they just work backwards to prove the point, like the reverse scientific method. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure they're doing that with attendance now, too. Um, Probably are. Yeah. But um, well, we, we've got uh, 
next question for you, if you're ready to move on. But Pete Rowe is one of my favorites. I, I always value those stories, especially since you spent time with him as a, as a pitching coach on his staff. But so our next question from our audience is they, they want to, you know, controlling 90 feet. Obviously, there's base stealing now going on in Major League Baseball. Part of it because of the, you know, pitchers can only throw over a certain number of times. There's a clock on the pitcher now, almost like a shot clock in baseball where runners can time it. Um, the bases are bigger, so there's there's not as far to run. But audience members are wanting to know, what are some ways that you used to use or that you would employ controlling those 90 feet? You know, whether it's varying looks, wide moves, you know, good move, great move stuff, whatever things you would you would use. But then, you know, talk to some of the young audience out there and ways they can do it. Well, the, the first thing, uh, you know, I learned when, when I came up, there was very little speed in the game in the American League. You had Louis Aparicio, and then along came Campy Campaneris, and then uh, Billy North with the with the A's. So speed wasn't a big factor. But when it did become, uh, as, as the years rolled on, uh, I was taught to vary my count. So you come to a set, the rule says you have to stop for a full second. Uh, pitchers push the envelope with that they have for you. I don't think Phil Necro ever stopped for a full second in his career. But you have to make a set at the belt, a stop, a pause. You can't just pitch like you're in a windup. But I always uh, I learned to vary my count. So one time you might get it down to the to wherever your hands rest uh, in, in front of your belt and say, okay, 1,001. Now the next time you go might go 1,002, 1,003, because all good base runners will say they, they pay attention to the rhythm of the, of the pitcher. And if you vary your count, that's a good way to keep them from, you know, really getting a read on when you're going home. Uh, and if I ever had any doubt, I was a left, being a left-hander was an advantage because you could see how far the runner was off. And I had that little point where I said, if Aparicio or Campaneris uh, or when I got to the, the National League, it was uh, Morgan. I was always I was always thrilled when I heard Lou Brock say he never tried to to steal on me because he he couldn't read. You know, he couldn't get a jump because I I was probably the first pitcher to use the slide step, and the slide step is when you come to a set position and most of your weight on your back foot, and instead of picking your leg up like a normal pitching motion, you just take a very, rather quick slide step and deliver the ball home. Now that has to be developed because most pitchers who haven't been trained that way, when you go to use a slide step, chances are the ball's going to go high and away because your arm will never catch up with your body. So I spent a lot of time working on that slide step in the in the mid-70s. I remember Billy Connors coaching the Cubs that he had Rick Russell come over and kind of look at, at what I did. I'd, I'd really have to have some video to show you exactly uh, how I did that. But that's, that's another method. And then... Uh, you know, if I, uh, I I don't like that rule. I mean, baseball wants to create more stolen bases. That's fine, but I don't like it when they when they mess with the integrity of the game. And part of the part of the uh, defense a pitcher has against a stolen base is to vary your count, which is legal, but also to step off. And you can only disengage the rubber rubber. I think twice now. Can you not? I think that's one of the rules. Yeah. So yes. I got If I was at my set and all of a sudden I kind of had my mind made up to go home, that's another thing. Make up your mind one way or the other. If you're looking at the guy on first and you're looking at him and you're looking at him, don't start going home before you pick up your target. Make sure you've committed to, okay, I got him in check. 
my attention is on the guy with the bat in his hand because he's the one who can do the most damage. So you have to be none of this picking your leg up and all of a sudden decided, well, I think I'll go to first or I think I'll go home. Uh, but I think uh, what I used to do when I got set and I thought, well, maybe he's getting an extra step on me. It was difficult to throw the first from the slide step as far as have a move. I, I didn't care about my move. I just wanted to make sure I stopped him from taking a, a walking lead, and then I could get the ball to home plate in, in about one second. Uh, and most catchers, they're even better now, but they, they could get the, uh, the ball from the mitt to second base in about a little after, a little over two, and there's not a, a base stealer without a, a running lead can steal you steal on you with that kind of a competition with that kind of a combination but uh, I don't think you're allowed to step off the rubber as often as we could because that's what I would do if I if I came set and I thought well now nah, he's got an extra step there I would just lift my back foot and step off the rubber which is perfectly legal and then the runner would go back to first and then I'd start my process again um, so I think those are the ways that I tried to combat, uh, you know, stolen bases. And unfortunately, with these two rules, they have really limited what pitchers can do now. And they've increased the, uh, the chances of stealing bases. And I think the numbers show that. Yeah, everybody's stealing bases now, the days. And it's, it's, almost, hard to, it's almost hard to look at base stealing technique to see who's successful and why, because it appears like everybody's exploiting the rules and hopefully the pitching side of it can have enough in the off season to catch up to, to combat it. But I'd, I'd love to see him just go back to the way it used to be and keep the bases the same, you know, size they were before and make it, make it challenging, really value those good base dealers. Uh, Cause I think it's a little out of hand right now. It's almost like amateur, it's like a uh, grassroots baseball where guys get on first and they're just going no matter what. You know, I think that in listening to the commissioner of the meeting we had with him in Cooperstown, I think some of those rules, like the relief pitcher having to face three men, uh, I think some of those may be eliminated because of the positive effect the pitch clock has had, that games are being played at a, a better pace. Uh, some of them are not necessarily all, you know, there's a three-hour and 28-minute game, I think, yesterday, but uh, they're going to have that's going to happen, but it's being played with a with a faster pace now because of the pitch clock, and I think maybe because of that they could uh, eliminate a couple of those uh, a couple of those rules. I hope they do because it it's kind of skews uh, the record book, which has been skewed since uh, expansion back in 1969, and then of course the uh, or rather 1961, and then the playoffs in 1969. So the record book is has been altered over decades, but uh, I'd like to see it go back to a little more real baseball. Yeah, maybe that is the method to the madness. They threw a whole bunch of paint at the wall and and uh, see the one that's having the biggest impact and eliminate the other variables to, to get back to baseball. But um, so with, with uh, staying on the pitching pitching side, uh, another question was, wanted they wanted to have you talk about pitching patterns right now. And one of the examples uh, was, you know, if a, if a guy's late on a fastball, don't speed his bat up by throwing something soft or maybe a breaking pitch. Um, don't, you know, don't, don't fall into that pattern. Another one is, you know, which I always saw, I loved as a, I, I laugh at as a hitter because whenever I hit something and I foul it straight back, you always hear like you're on it and you're not on it. That means you're not on it when you foul it straight back. And 
I always ask our catcher to encourage our pitcher to throw the same pitch just a little bit higher um, because you'll see that they're not on it doing that. So our audience wanted you to talk to some pitching patterns or some some nuances that you used on the mound to determine which pitch to throw next or you know how you set up maybe inning to inning. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that's something that's not discussed enough. I mean, we, we hear uh, scouting reports where Joe Smith is a fastball hitter. Well, if you, if you pitch with a particular sequence and get to a 2-2 count, for example, your fastball might be the best pitch at that particular time because of the sequence that you've used. But the rule of thumb, yeah, if a, if a hitter is right on your pitch or if he's a little bit late, then you don't want to throw him a medium seat, uh, speed breaking ball. If I had a, a pitcher, which didn't happen too, too much later in my career because I didn't have you know that much of my fastball, we didn't know what the miles per hour was, but it was dependent on movement, not velocity. But Tony Pena, the great catcher, was was an example. Tony was an opposite field hitter. So even he would even foul my fastball off to the right side. So I wouldn't throw him a median speed breaking ball. I would throw him a real slow one. Real slow or real. And then, and then after that, maybe try to, as Dizzy Dean used to say, put a little extra on it on the outside corners. Kind of vary your speed, but... Pitchers should really pay attention to uh, to reading the bat, even during batting practice as well as during the game. And when I was pitching coach, I would take, uh, for example, Tommy Browning, if he was pitching the next night against that same team, i say, let's go out in the dugout and watch him take batting practice. And you can kind of tell in batting practice where the guy is taking the, you know, is, is trying to hit the ball. You can tell a pull hitter from a guy that uses the whole field. And then you learn to read the bat. It's uh, it's the same way if a guy were to be way ahead of your slow stuff, uh, way ahead of your slow curve, then any kind of a, a, a fastball in the hitting zone is going to kind of, he's going to be more on time with that. And that's just a skill that by paying attention is still a dancing around and all the antics they have going on in dugouts is just kind of pay attention to what's going on in the playing field. Yeah. Um, I, and this is a question for me, not, not from the audience, but I, when, when you, as a pitcher, you see a guy, they, they start digging into that box. They start planting that back foot um, and, and getting real comfortable with that, those feet. What's your thought as a pitcher, um, you know, as far as the feet are concerned on a hitter, what are you trying to do to them? Well, you want to make them move your feet. I was so happy to, to see the example the other day. I don't know if he's a young kid, but the, the pitcher's last name was Oviedo from the Pirates. And he buzzed one up and into Acuna. And, of course, Acuna wanted to come out to the mound. Well, sure, hitters today particularly are not accustomed to being moved off the plate. So when a pitch does come up there, well, they think it's, uh, you know, it's an insult to them. So they're going to run out to the mound. And that's why the um, – but they want to run out to the mound, but that's why the, the brush back pitch just to make the hitter move his feet doesn't mean you have to hit him uh, is an effective pitch. And yeah, if I see a guy up there uh, digging in, digging real deep, uh, I want to buzz, buzz him off the plate and make him move his, uh, make him move his feet. I think over time when the same hitters are facing the same pitchers, like, if Bob Gibson would stare down at a guy and he was digging his feet, the hitter would look out and say, oops, I probably shouldn't have done that. And, uh, you know, and Gibby, who, you know, is known as a 
Gibby wasn't a mean pitcher. He he pitched with a with kind of a chip on his shoulder, but uh, he wasn't going to let anybody take advantage of that plate. Kind of a, a an ironic story is that in the '60s I hit more men per season than Bob Gibson did, but unfortunately I hit right hand hitters in the back foot with my curveball. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't get out of the way. But uh, yeah, that's such an effective pitch, and uh, so if you see a guy uh, digging in as a pitcher, that's you know that's what you want to do. And unfortunately, again, the rules have uh, have legislated against uh, uh, pitchers for doing that. Oh, you, it's a softness in sports. It's across all sports now too. Yeah. You see in basketball right now, if you you block a shot and you accidentally touch a guy's head, it's a flagrant two, and you're ejected and you lose two games. I don't know if you if you heard this story, if we told it, but, you know, Bob Gibson, the last pitch Bob Gibson threw, uh, Pete Lecoq, who was a left-hand hitter with the with the Cubs for all, hit a home run. And then there were several years later where there was uh, an alumni game of some sort, and Pete was hitting against Gibby, and Gibby drilled him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Just to let him go, I didn't. I didn't forget that home run you hit off me. But, you know, it, it sounds like a macho thing, but that really was a weapon for for pitchers than the threat. I mean, I was always uh, thrilled at Reggie Jackson, and I was fortunate to have uh, success against Reggie, is that he knew that once or twice I was going to come up and in. I didn't hit him. Maybe I hit him once in, in all the at-bats he had against me, but he knew that I was going to push him off the plate. And see, if a hitter, if he has just that little bit of a, a split second before he makes his move, that's a big advantage to the pitcher. I see. I saw yesterday, uh, I think it was Siri of, the, of Tampa Bay. He got hit on the wrist. I think somebody else got hit on the wrist. And I'd say over the last decade, we have seen more injuries to the wrist and the hands of hitters because they start into the hitting zone with their hands so much faster with the velocity there. They want to get out there as quick as they can, and their hands are exposed. Whereas you know, I'm sure, from, from the old the way of hitting is when you took your stride, your hands actually went back. Back, yeah. That's and separate. your front shoulder you know, kept your hands back there. Like Wally Moses, who was a great hitting coach with the Yankees and then later with the Tigers when they both won World Series, uh, Wally would say, when the pitcher shows you his hip pocket, you show him yours. Yeah. So as as the pitcher went into his motion, the hitter kind of got his his motion going to load up. I remember that's what Brooks Robinson told me when I went to my quick delivery in, in the mid-70s. He said, I don't have a timing device anymore to start my swing because I was just pitching from a static start and mo- more of a step and throw, which was a big advantage, I think more pitchers should do it. And I wish that I would have started it much earlier in my career. Well, we stole that from you this weekend. We had one of our, our guys whose his dad actually played minor league baseball as well. Um, like myself and uh, his son is a, is a budding young pitchers learning the game. Um, part of his issue, he was, he was taking too long on the mound and uh, we got him not quite emulating your, your situation, but just a step and throw. And, and he, boom, he breezed through four innings like oh, that. Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you look at the athletic motion, and I'm I'm studying, I say studying, I'm rereading right now a golf book called "Swing the Clubhead" by Ernest Jones. And Ernest Jones was a champion golfer over in England, and then he lost the lower part of his right leg in the war, and he had to learn to play by just you know swinging the clubhead and not using a lot of the body. Well, I uh, 
I tore, I, I tore or uh, strained, I'm going to find out for sure tomorrow, a hamstring. So I don't have much leg action going. So I'm reading that book and it's all, uh, it's all revolves around the motion is an uninterrupted motion when you swing the golf club. And that's why when I like that drill where you roll a ground ball to a player and he comes up like an infielder, hop, step, and throw, that's an uninterrupted motion. And you take that motion to the pitching mound. You don't break it apart in little sections. And you'll have fewer arm injuries, and you'll have more rhythm and tempo. And you'll also be, it'll be more deceptive to the hitter, which you probably found out with a young man that did that. Yeah, they had a hard time timing them. They were barreling early. And yeah. They had time to think. And, and, and I, I, I use that that you, you, you shared with me, too, as when, when pitchers are struggling or before they struggle, getting them into that rhythm of the crow hop and, and always understanding their natural balance, rhythm, and timing through that. Very simple, right? Uh, often forgotten, very much lost in today's game, uh, skill or drill that you're talking yeah, about. You never, you never see an infielder pick up a ball and then go into uh, about a three-part motion like a pitcher does. He just steps, throws it in one fluid motion. He's got to throw it over there. Well, I, I found that out too late in my career that I, I wish that I'd have done that my whole career. And I think if, if pitchers did learn to develop that in an early age instead of concentrating on how hard they can throw, how fast they can throw, uh, I really think we'd have fewer arm. My arm never felt better than it did at age uh, 35 and 36 in those two years with the White Sox where I think combined, I probably, I think I pitched 500 and maybe 570 innings combined those two years, 300 and some and one. And my arm felt great. I mean, I was pitching sometimes on the third day uh, and certainly just every four day, never on the fifth day. That was, that was too much rest. Uh, and uh, so I, I, it's proven. I was, I proved to myself that that is a good way to pitch. Yeah. And you know what, and again, I, I was a second baseman, so I could have, I could have kicked the ball over to first base half the time, but um, I'm 50 years old. I'm out there from March and it's now mid-September. I'm, I, I, I swear I've thrown 200 balls a day batting practice to these kids and um, minimum. And I'm going to knock on wood right now, but how in the heck, and I know I'm only throwing about 60 mile an hour straight balls. And I know pitching is more of a, a little bit more violent the way these guys are throwing now, but uh, I'm 50. My arm's holding up. Okay. Yeah, well, it'll rust out for it'll wear out. Right, and uh, I do my maintenance, so make sure. But uh, but anyway, I, I digress. It's this is not about me, me and my batting practice prowess here. But uh, we had a, another question. We've got, if you got a little bit more time here, we're pushing on forty five minutes. But one of the parents was asking, you know, they spend all this money on gloves nowadays, and of course, you would agree more than anybody that the pitcher is a viable fielder on that on that field with all the gold gloves that you won. The question that the dad had was, I spent, he spent $400 plus on a glove. I had an answer for him right away. I don't spend that much money on a glove. But uh, he was talking about barehanding a baseball, a techniques, whether it's a slow roller on the move and uh, when the ball is kind of a dead stop. What's what's the technique you use with bare hands when you're pitching, if at all? Um, and, of course, your situation probably be the hardest one would be ball rolling toward the third base side, even though you're, you know, you're kind of falling off that way, but your back's to the, the first base. How would you barehand the ball if at all, um, you know, as, as a pitcher coming off the mound? Well, I think the general rule, if the ball is rolling, if the ball is still moving, 
at all times try to use your glove. But there are skilled third basemen, like Brooks Robinson, who was the best in his era, uh, would always use the glove. Uh, Mike Schmidt, who was my teammate, and, and of course that was off AstroTurf, but Schmidt, he was so talented, and there are others that are out there like that, probably Nolan Arenado. Uh, they have the hand-eye that they can pick it with the bare hand, the, the ground ball. But I would say, in general, if the ball is moving, you use your glove. Uh, if it's rolling down the third baseline and it comes to a, a dead stop, obviously I'm going to pick that ball up, pivot, hop, step, and then throw it to first uh, first base from there. So that that is general the uh, the rule of thumb, I think, for any position in terms of whether you bare-handed or use your glove. Yeah. And when you're bare, if you're going to barehand it, if you're not a you know skilled third baseman like Brooks or, or Mike Schmidt or Arenado, um, technique from the top, you grab top down on top of the ball. I I think you have to, uh, yeah. I, no, I would say I would say more times you want to, just like in the infielder, you probably as an infielder, you probably heard the expression nine out of ten go under. And yeah. So you always said keep your butt down, keep your glove down, keep your head down. So. I would say when the ball is rolling, I want to get my fingers underneath that ball if I possibly can. If it's still, uh, you know, if it if it's just standing there still, I want to get underneath it where I can. Chances are, if I just grip the top of it, I might drop it there, particularly if there's a little moisture on the grass. But yeah, uh, again, I think those are the things, and I'm so disappointed when I I go to a spring training and see pitchers' drills that we we drilled on those things time and time again. And today, with the limited, you know, shorter practices, uh, hey, show up a uh, half hour before game time, I don't think there's enough repetitions put into practicing those kinds of things that if you developed in spring training from the time you're a young pitcher or high school practice, whatever, then when they happen in a game, you react automatically to them. That's a good point. And do you have time for one more? We had one one last question here. I You've spoken in the past about um, some of the catchers that you've you've worked with, and um, can, can you pinpoint for our audience? Because a lot of these young kids, when they're put into the catcher's role, they either put the biggest kid there, the kid with the strongest arm. Um, we know what's going on in Major League Baseball now with pitch comms. In fact, Jim Rooney, his show last week with Toe the Rubber, he chronicled a situation at his son's 10U game where they were using pitch comm between the coach and the pitcher, which I don't even want to get into. My head will explode if I if I get back into that. But from your standpoint as a pitcher, what are the attributes that you would look for in a in a good catcher, a good battery mate? Well, first of all, I want him to give me the sign as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, because my theory was study long, study wrong. Uh, I don't want him sitting back there looking, you know, to the left and to the right and like, what pitch will I call now? We, you, you should if you're a good catcher, and even if you're a, a you know, from a pitching standpoint. You should already be thinking two, three pitches in advance. If this pitch is a strike, this is where I'm going. If this is the by pattern that I'd like to get this hitter out with. So you don't just take it pitch by pitch and throw one pitch and then, okay, let's think it over. What shall we throw now? So, and catchers learn the way I like to work quickly. They put the fingers down in a hurry. And then I wanted a quiet, I think all pitchers would like a quiet catcher. Not a lot of extraneous movement behind the plate. I didn't want them sitting way outside, way inside. I think that's such a disservice to pitchers, particularly today, because with the velocity they're required to throw, 
they cannot have that pinpoint control. If you took a catcher today with with a lot of the major league pitchers and just said, sit right behind home plate with the target in the middle, and let's see how many times you can hit it or get it in the strike zone, I still don't know if they'd get 50%. So right. I want a I quiet catcher. And then like my first catcher who was such a uh, an asset to me was Earl Batty. And my strength was lowered away to a right-hand hitter. So Earl would be sitting where uh, the tops of his shin guards and his two shoulder pads on the chest protector, they would make the rectangle of the strike zone. And then as I went into my motion, he would gently lean toward the outside corner. So that's where the target was. Or he would lean the other way. He didn't just take a, a full step over there, which I think they do. Of course, today they're... Uh, there isn't any veteran catcher or Hall of Fame catcher that agrees with the way they're teaching catching today with that one leg splayed way out. Uh, I guess they have some kind of statistical information that says they should do that. But uh, you can talk to Johnny Bench, Carlton Fisk, uh, my friend Phil Roof. You could talk to any veteran catcher that was well-respected for their catching ability, and they certainly don't agree with that. Yeah, it's 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 been an indoctrination because I even have – I have young men that'll reach out to me to, to to play on the group that we have, and I always sit and talk to them about what my expectations are. And any catchers come in, I'll ask right away, like, "What's your thoughts on how you receive behind the play?" And I'll watch them. Gosh, if some if some kid is better, if, if the way they do it is working, then. But I don't think I'm doing justice to a catcher if I'm allowing them to do that. And I have catchers that come in say, "I like to catch on one knee, even with runners on base." And I said, "Well, that's phenomenal, but you probably won't be catching for me." Um, that regard and, I, and the other thing i like is is for uh it, it all goes to the pace of game and i think they're getting better at it now because of the pitch clock is to throw the ball right back to me uh as soon as the pitch is made give it give it back down we get that ball in my hand and get the feel for what the ball feels like so don't dilly dally behind the plate and as far as i'm concerned they could eliminate the trips to the mouth i think catchers learned uh after a period of time as i kind of gained veteran status I don't want any trips to the mound. Uh, the only time I would want it, like the late Timmy McCarver, my great friend, uh, when he would go to the mound, the only thing he would say to a pitcher that he was struggling, he said, I don't know anything about pitching, but I noticed, for example, that your arm angle is dropping from where it was early in the game. Little things like that that a catcher can notice, sure, I, I like to have that kind of advice. But if you're rolling along, oh, it just, it just, is painful when I see this happen, but a pitcher's rolling along. It's a tight game. He gets two outs. He goes to one and two on the next hitter time. And the catcher goes out. Let's talk it over what we're going to do. No, put the finger down. If I don't like it, I'll shake you off. Let's keep moving. Let's keep the momentum going. Yeah. And that, that comes over time too. It's uh, it's like a good dance partner there. They, they yeah. learn your moods and your movements and, I think that was all helpful. Thanks for, for your feedback today. The audience got a ton today. We answered all their questions. Is there anything that you want to want to cover or we didn't cover? Or do you want to tease the audience for next week on something? Well, I think we're seeing, again, the effects of what uh, long season can have on pitching. Uh, on, Max Scherzer had to leave the game last night. He had a little uh, spasm in his right tricep. You know, Max is a guy who, again, no pun intended, is, is kind of Max effort with every pitch. And, uh, you know, I think the difference between Justin Verlander, Verlander 
still has the power, but he has learned to, you know, to kind of pitch at different speeds. The best that I've seen like that in recent decades was Pedro. You know, Pedro was a lights out power pitcher. And then all of a sudden he changed into a, a pitcher that had the touch and feel. Everybody can't do that. Um, but in the relievers right now, uh, I think the giants are down to less than 50% of the innings their pitchers have pitched. So, um, talking to the president of the twins the other day and they're, they're starting pitching. They have the lowest ERA as a rotation since our rotation in 1972. But then again, you have a Cy Young candidate like Sonny Gray, who's made 29 starts and he's probably got about 14, no decisions. Is that, uh, uh, somehow or other, these teams are going to have to get their bullpens rested so that they're uh, so that they're effective in the postseason because that's going to determine who wins in the postseason. In my opinion, is who's got the the strongest bullpen. Yeah, I agree, and it just makes sense if they're going to reduce and train starting pitchers not to go so deep into games physically, mentally, as we started the show with. Then there better be a movement to develop and establish better closers, better relievers. Yeah, because it's too late. I mean, you can call on your starters now to go deeper in the game, but if they haven't done that during the year, it's going to be harder for them to do it. Yeah. Because they're going to reach like the the George Kirby issue where he just says, well, you know, I'm kind of trained to go six innings. So not only physically, but mentally, they, you know, they don't know what it's like to face that batting order. My game of the last two weeks, I was thrilled. I just happened to be looking on my iPad to see how the different games were going, and I saw where the – Diamondbacks had the Cubs beat one nothing, and Zach Gallon was pitching. And I happened to be on the practice range at the golf club that day, and the young man was a big Cub fan. He said, boy, how about my Cubs? And I said, yeah, but this afternoon, look out. They're going to be facing Zach Gallon. So Zach Gallon pitches a one nothing complete game shutout and even faced the top three hitters four times in the same game. What a concept. Yeah, right. But now he's capable of doing that. But, you know, if you take a pitcher that's never gone more than six and you get into postseason and you'd like to see him go seven, uh, that's not really fair to him because he's not conditioned to do that. And, and, you know, unless in this day of counting pitches, if he's had a stress-free seven innings, you leave him. The other day, Pablo Lopez, who's one of my favorites with the Twins, he had 14 strikeouts, no walks, eight innings shutout. 70% 70% strikes. They took him out after the eighth inning. The reliever gave up two. They lose the game. That's sickening. But we're, well, that's what we see happening now. And uh, I would assume if they try to do it differently in the postseason, it might backfire on them because they haven't trained their pitchers to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. On the other side, you'd think they'd be rested enough to where they could with all the yeah. other But I agree with you. It's uh, In order to have that success, they would have had to demonstrate it somewhere along the way. But um, well, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what happens with these playoffs. I know half the teams make it, but baseball tends to change a little bit in the playoffs where they play a little bit more traditional style where they're moving guys over. Um, it's amazing how that comes back and analytics get thrown out the window to some degree. But yeah, uh, I hope so. I mean, that there's still a rule. There's still a kind of a, uh, a feeling out there that with this analytical approach, that they think it might be easier to run into a Justin Verlander fastball a couple times a game and get two runs than it is to put three singles together against him. But uh, I'm not too sure about that. I think if if you go up there with the approach of using the whole field, uh, maybe bunt a man over, I still think that your your chances of scoring a run against a top-flight pitcher might be better doing that than just uh, 
bail and wail and try to hit a home run. Well, you know, my solution to, to these analytics issues is if they feel that strongly about them, grab a bat, grab a glove. If you want, you know, a position player to pitch in the ninth inning, you go do it since you made that yeah. decision. Yeah. Like it. And same well, thing. Speaking of rules, just in the, I hope that's a rule that somewhere along the line they eliminate is that if you have to bring a postseason player in to pitch, the game is over. Yeah. You just, you, it's the end of it. Bringing in, like Tito had to bring a guy in, the utility infielder, pitch four innings. Now, everybody talks about war. Well, the guys that pile up stats against that guy are are increasing their their value in terms of war, which is about as phony a stat as I think is out there. If I, in my career, and I did it several times, said to the manager, if we get in a, uh, a game today, uh, we're, we're getting blown out, I'd love to pitch a couple innings. I'm trying to work on some things. Well, I might go in and pitch two, three innings uh, and then give up uh, several runs. Well, that works against my war. Well, now instead of doing that, they bring a position player in there. Yeah, try to find the formula in that. Yeah, that's yeah. One, that's one of my issues with with any type of I don't care what walk of life it's in, if something is hidden like that and nobody will give you the formula, that's a weapon of math destruction. That's yeah. my term for that. That's a problem. So, but uh, well, I think that's that's a good uh, good show today. We're going to have a lot more questions next week, so I encourage the audience to get All with right. it. I look forward to it. Yeah, they'll they'll load us up with questions. I'll pass them on your way, and we'll try to get to all of them if we can. I have some left over from this week that we'll, maybe we can get to next week for the for the audience. But um, great job this week, Jim. We appreciate the efforts you give to Cots Corner and and all that you give to the game to baseball and all that you've given to the game. So um, and I, I'm 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 I've got to check my guest list for next Monday for coaching Kerner because if I have a third guest in a row that talks about your dancing abilities, I'm going to have to play the lottery because that's that's. Yeah. Oh, he's out there. I can name you a few. But I don't, don't give me any hints right now because if it happens, I want it to happen organically. So loaded deck here but thanks so much for for your efforts on the show our audience loves what you do as do i uh, thanks to our fifty thousand subscribers we appreciate your push you got us on iHeartRadio as the newest podcast network on there um 74 countries grassroots mlb front offices we've got the ear of, ma- of baseball from the low levels of grassroots all the way through the front offices so we hope we're helping the pendulum shift we're not going to stop till we do but jim thanks so much again have a great rest of the week i hope your hamstring gets better all right thanks dave Take